You've tuned in to Truth to Power right here on Forward Radio, your weekly community conversation like you won't hear anywhere else. My name is Justin Mogg, one of the volunteers here at this station, and I'm thrilled to be bringing you some highlights from the live coverage we did of Community Control Now. That's one of our local programs here at the station, and they organized a vegan breakfast teach-in this past Saturday, held it at the Unitarian uh, Church right next to us here at Forward Radio, and we were so thrilled to be there and to be live broadcasting and sharing with you some of the many voices from our community for progressive change. So today we're going to hear from Vincent Gonzalez and Food Not Bombs on Going Vegan, and then we'll hear uh, from one of our candidates for uh JCPS uh, school board and former programmer here on Forward Radio, Gay Adelman. After that, we'll hear from a representative from the um, Socialist Party, and we will wrap it up with Change Today, Change Tomorrow. You won't want to miss. This is some great stuff here on the Truth to Power program here on Forward Radio. We are joining you today from First Unitarian Church for a special event that has been put on by our friends here at Ford Radio and Community Control Now. They're hosting this awesome vegan breakfast teaching right now, and uh, the food is just coming out. We want to invite everyone to come on out to the First Unitarian Church at 809 South 4th Street. My name is Justin Mogg. I'll be hosting this special live broadcast today and bringing you some of the awesome speakers from this teaching. But we also want you to enjoy the vegan food, the free vegan breakfast. Can't get that anywhere else. We'd love to be out in the community here on Forward Radio. Uh, There's a bunch of great people here. uh, And Vincent Gonzalez and Michael T. from Community Control Now are in the house. And they are helping put this amazing event together. Uh, Especially Vincent Gonzalez. Shout out to him. He's been doing so much for our community and pulling this event together. Uh, it's the first time Community Control Now has organized a teach-in like this, and it's really exciting to be part of it here. And I'm going to step inside. For Unitarian, just come on through the back, uh, through the courtyard entrance, uh, and we got the DJ going. We got the food being served, and it smells delicious up in here. I'll tell you what. Uh, <laughs> hey, Vincent Gonzalez, what do we got on the menu today? Oh man, the good stuff here. <laughs> we got uh, everything vegan, of course, man. I got some pancakes. I got this egg uh, impossible sausage mixture. Oh yeah. And I got some fried potatoes, man. Y'all come check this out. Good stuff here. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, I'll let you get back to the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, people are just filling up their plates and sitting down right now. It's going to be an exciting lineup of speakers. There's some literature available too from some of our speakers that are uh, here today to make this event happen. Uh, We're so excited to be a part of it here at Ford Radio, and this is exactly what we want to do as a community radio station, is pull people together from around the community who are interested in progressive change, and that's what this event is all about. Community Control Now started about a year ago on our station, and it's been so great to have them as contributing to what we do on Ford Radio and, and being a voice for the people every week here on our station. Uh, who are we going to hear from today? Uh, we got Gay Adelman up, coming up. You've heard Gay on our station, of course, uh, host of Save Our Schools with Dear JCPS, which has been uh, on hiatus while Gay is running for school board. 
She is running for the JCPS School Board in District 4 right now. And well, she was telling me earlier, she's got she got right-wing fascists knocking on her door, intimidating her. So uh, I can't wait to hear what she's got to say about bringing progressive change to our school board. Then we're going to hear from the Party for Socialism and Liberation, PSL, on the move to abolish the Supreme Court. And we'll also hear from Change Today, Change Tomorrow. I've been doing fantastic work, uh, especially in the west side of Louisville, to bring the cha- kind of progressive change we need to help feed people, do mutual aid, that kind of work. Change Today, Change Tomorrow is a fantastic organization. You want to hear from them coming up in just about a half hour or so. And enjoy this free vegan breakfast. Amanda Fuller's here. She's just loaded up her plate. What you got on there? I don't know, but it looks delicious. I got some potatoes. I got some fresh fruit. And I have some look like a vegan egg scramble of some kind. And looks delicious. So no actual eggs in there? I don't think so. That's what I'm told. Yeah, this is all vegan. This is so exciting. And so uh, we're going to bring the music down and get our program going here at the Vegan Breakfast Teaching here at First Unitarian Church. My name is Vincent Gonzalez, Community Control Now, and glad that y'all came out here, put on for the community, eat some dope food. Hey, what's the food talking about? What's that? That egg sauce? Yeah, all right, yeah, let's go. Snap, snap. Let's talk about that uh, apple cider. That was, yeah, apples, yeah, okay, let's talk about that for a second here. So, we just want to like highlight different people in the community who are putting in the work, you know, promises made. Uh, a lot of this came from the Breonna Taylor uprising and uh yeah absolutely you know what i mean this is like our version of keeping it going you know and and doing those things in the day-to-day you know it's you know going out in the streets saying f12 that's one thing you know but it's like the work that goes on beyond that you know that's what we're really trying to do here so uh hoping that we can get like a lot of really dope people in here man learn from each other with everything real quick like to do a quick little moment of silence man for uh all our people, man, freedom fighters who are no longer with us, Chris Wells, Travis Nagee, just put on for a couple seconds, man. We want to keep persons who do this work in mind. What we think of that? Thank you all. So this is a vegan event, so I'd be remiss if I didn't preach to y'all now that the door's closed, so we got y'all locked in. But um, no, we want to talk about it, and uh, my homie Alex was just going to put a little something on real quick about our experience with veganism we was throwing down food not bombs um and just looking at it you know in today's political landscape it's kind of thrown around like a football people kind of use that term it's you know it's it's passe but in a ethical framework of what it means to have compassion for other sentient beings so just gonna put on a little something that i wrote about it so i was an off and on vegetarian vegan for like 10 years prior to this, you know, watch some spooky Netflix documentary, get scared, you know what I mean? And then I'm like, oh, I gotta do something. And then, um, and then it's right back to it because, you know, the food industrial complex doesn't set these things up for us to, you know, doesn't make it so where it's accessible. And, you know, in particular, in blighted areas, I like that term food apartheid, you know? It's, it's, it's by design that things are, things are um, carried out in such a way. So was doing it mostly as a diet and it didn't really click for me until I realized that 
Um, well, that's the nature of things. You know, you start and stop, figure it out along the path. And also, veganism is not a diet. It's an ethical framework that seeks to end the exploitation of all sentient beings. All right, so anybody who knows me in here, you know I don't shut up about it. But, um, you know, just wanted to give a little clarity on why this is a lifestyle that I've chose and what's been able to, uh, you know, some of the benefits that's been able to give to me in my life. I like to call it a tri-variable. Three main reasons why I'm a vegan. Number one, it's bad for your health. Consensus nutritional science has proved that many of the top 10 killers of American heart disease, certain cancers, diabetes can be arrested and in many cases reversed by greatly reducing and or eliminating the consumption of animal products. Okay, so, and I think about my people, man, marginalized folk here. The notorious food apartheid system that we're under and been subjected to has caused a lot of health disparities and we have to think about that as it pertains to justice and what do people deserve in this life. So it was kind of like a, uh, a repel against a white supremacist capitalist superstructure in so many ways. You know, it's, just, it's beyond just the food we eat. It's like how we experience our environment. Number two, bad for the environment. If you care about this planet, you have an obligation to examine the role that the animal factory farming industry plays in the destruction of the planet. Of all the stats that they got out there, you know, you get one of them spooky Netflix documentaries to get you in. But um, this is the one that kind of stood out to me the most. You know, typically they say, okay, save the planet. They tell you go ride a bike or something. Combine every, all the, the greenhouse gas emissions of every mode of transportation on Earth. And it only equals up to 75% of the factory farm industry. Okay, so like we have to once again, examine, you know, what role we take in these things and, you know, be critical about our stewardship to the land. You know, we got to be in sync with it. You don't get one planet. So bad for your health, bad for your environment. And number three, I had to examine the fact, and this is why it took me so long to kind of start and stop. Man, I had to examine the fact that I was eating animals and I'm an animal. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, real talk. I know, you know, I know science isn't a high primary in Kentucky, but you know what I mean? Just putting, I didn't, you know, I had to put that two and two together on that. Like, man, I'm an animal and I'm eating animals. You know what I mean? So it's like, if I call myself principal, you know what I'm, these things mean, you know, these words mean something. If I call myself principal in my fight against unjust and oppressive systems, I have a decision to make about the role in which I partake in it, all right? I, I decided to dedicate the rest of my life to the solemn task of ending ending needless suffering wherever it may lie. All right, so this is a quote that I got. So I'm not trying to do the animals the way white people did my ancestors. So I had to sit on that, man. And um, I'll leave you with the words of a vowed vegan and liberationist, Dr. Angela Davis. I think there's a connection between the way we treat animals and the way we treat people who are at the bottom of the hierarchy. I sometimes am really disappointed that many of us can assume that we're these radical activists, but we don't know how to reflect on the food that we put in our bodies, and we don't realize the extent in which we are implicated in the whole process of capitalism and by participating uncritically in the food politics offered us by the great corporations, great in quotation marks. I think it's a part of a revolutionary perspective, how we not only discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how we can develop compassionate relations with the other creatures we share the planet with. So I'm um, gonna put on, my homie Alex is gonna put on to, uh, you doing like the ethical framework of veganism? Or? I've, been, I've been cooking pancakes for an yeah. hour and a half, so if you see. Uh, <laughs>
I'm not bragging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it is the longest I've ever cooked pancakes. So, good. well, thank you, thank you. And so, yeah, if, if you see, I'm typically not covered in, in pancake batter either. So, uh, typically not. Typically not. I'm just going to say a few. I'm just going to add on a little bit to what Ben said. I, I came to, to veganism as an anti-capitalist, and I see uh, lots of different. I think I see some labor shirts out there. I think I see some different community shirts. I'm assuming a lot of people in this room are critical of capitalism, uh, to say the least. So I, so I, I came to veganism as um, an anti-capitalist, as someone who was thinking about human liberation movements. And for many years, I didn't think about the aspect of how we humans treat other animals. And it's interesting, I wanted to just uh, talk a little bit about what Vince said about the, the word animal. Um, yes, human beings are in the animal family. We're, we're mammals. We're related to... Lots of different animals that we see every day, right? Raccoons, squirrels, our dogs, our cats, we're in, the same, we're in the same animal family. But we use that term, which I believe is an extremely socially constructed term, to define other individuals, because animal, fellow animals are individuals, as having less moral relevance than humans. So I think it's a, it's a very anthropocentric uh, viewpoint and also, uh, white nationalism and white supremacy movements have always defined certain groups of people as either animals or animal-like, whether it's uh, LGBTQ plus people, women, disabled people, people of color, etc. They've all been defined as animal-like by white nationalists, white supremacists. And you hear it today. You hear people on AM talk radio, our Trump supporters, or Trump himself, they, they say the word, these thugs, these animals. You know, they, so the, the term is still used to describe individuals, whether human or not, who have less moral relevance. And I think that's a key component of veganism. That's why I came to veganism. And I don't like making too many assumptions, but I do assume, based on the anecdotal interactions that I have with people, that most people don't actually know what veganism is. They think it's this bourgeois consumer choice. And there is a version of that, which it is. There's, there's, lots, of, uh, there's lots of affluent white folks that tell people that they have to eat a certain thing and that this is a dietary thing. Vince already elaborated on that, that it's not only a diet. And I really like, it's not a, it's not a complete definition, but the first group, the vegan society, that, that used the term veganism, there, there have always been vegans, but the first group that actually started to call themselves vegans, they, they used this definition. And I, I want to add a little bit to it because I don't think it's perfect, but I do like it. There's some critical phrases in it. It's, it, it states that veganism is a philosophy and a way of living which seeks to exclude as far as is possible and practicable. And I think those are key components. All forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing, or any other purpose, and by extension promotes the, the development and use of animal-free alternatives for the benefits of animals, humans, and the environment. In dietary terms, it denotes the practice of dispensing with all products derived wholly or partly from animals. So I think the, the, the key phrase is practicable and possible. A lot of people say, I can't afford to, to do this, or I can't do this medically, or I don't have a lot of choice. In my, whether you're houseless, you're, you're poor, whether you're a prisoner, uh, whether you are disabled, whether you're living on Social Security. So there's lots of reasons that you have, a, a, there's a spectrum of choice in what we consume and what we wear, obviously, as humans. So if you have more privilege, obviously you have more choice. And so that practicable and possible phrase, to me, is key. You don't necessarily, it, this sounds contradictory to people, you don't necessarily have to eat a 100% plant-based diet even to be a vegan. If you're about the abolition of what we call speciesism, speciesism being the oppression that affects individuals based upon their species, saying we can unnecessarily use this species for food 
but we don't use this species for food, et cetera. So if, if, you're, if you're interested in, in trying to abolish that and you're interested in, in, in a politics that is, is interested in organizing around that, pressure campaigns, et cetera, that's veganism. It's not just what we do in our daily lives, which focuses as a, as a boycott of sorts. It's, it's a lot like the, uh, I, I also, I, I observe the, the boycotts, the boycott and divestment and sanction movement to, um, in regards to Israel-Palestine, if you're familiar with that. And, and I, I look at it as, we, we don't only uh, boycott products that are made in the occupied territories in Gaza and West Bank, et cetera. But we, if, if you care about that, you also do other work about organizing and standing in solidarity with Palestinians. And veganism is much the same way in that regards where the, the aspect of extricating yourself where you can, where it's practice, practicable and possible from those systems of domination that hurt other animals and exploit other animals in every capacity. It's about doing what you can. So I, I just wanted to say a couple notes on that and let's see what else we can stay here. Yeah, so another term that you might hear vegan, vegans use, um, particularly anti-capitalist vegans that are interested in the broader scope of, of collective liberation, we use the term total liberation a lot. And what that means is it's extending um, an anti-capitalist, like in many senses, um, either a socialist, anarchist, or Marxist point of view, to also ecology and to, to fellow animals, to other animals. So it's about extending those principles that probably a lot of people in this room are familiar with that I just mentioned, those liberation-based uh, philosophies to fellow animals and the environment. So we use that term. And I, I would just say that, that there is, like, like I talked about in the beginning, there is a version of, of what people call veganism, which is alienating to a lot of people. And I think that a lot of people on the left know that version and they dislike it. And I dislike that version of it too. But when they hear it, they think that's what veganism is. And they think people are trying to, uh, to gatekeep them and and, uh, and tell them to go buy expensive foods, and that's not at all what veganism is. So I just wanted to say a few words about it and talk about uh, what, what veganism is and isn't, and the notion that, that veganism is really something that is accessible to all people because the very basis of it is about what's practicable and possible, and extending a view of collective liberation to, to other sentient individuals, not just humans. So that's all I have to say, and um, if anybody wants to talk, I'll be here for a while about it. I know, it's, uh, I know probably a lot of people in this room are skeptical of veganism, I would imagine. I would, I, I would imagine that. So if, if you want to have an individual conversation with me, I'm happy to do it. So I'll be around for a while. Thank you all very much. Because I have a lot to say and it's really important, but what I'm going to try to do is talk a little bit about a lot of stuff. And if there's something in particular that resonates with you that you want to talk further. My card is all over the room. Um, I am going to have to scoot out as soon as I get through talking, so I don't want anybody to think I'm being rude. Um, I'm headed to Frankfurt to participate in the uh, Rally for Women, and I'm calling it the Rally for Women and Anyone Who Can Get Pregnant, um, because they are coming for our, for our bodies, and they don't stop with just one or the other. And um, so I'm, I'm a speaker there, and so I'm going to need to, to head out as soon as I get through talking. So I really do appreciate you, Vince, for inviting me. Everybody here that I've had a chance to talk with, thank you for your time and for sharing uh, your concerns and your experiences with me. I am running for JCPS school board, um, so I know I look a lot like a politician. Um, but I want to tell you a little bit about my background. I'm an activist, but I'm not even an activist by choice. I'm, I'm a PTA mom. I came to this movement work as a PTA mom uh, at Shawnee High School. My son attended Shawnee High School from 2012 to 2016. And 
uh, I live in the East End, so I'm running for school board out in Northeast Jefferson County. District 3 is the district. James Craig is my school board member now. I voted for James. I endorsed James. I run an advocacy group that focuses on public education, and we really believed that James was going to get up there and vote in our best interests and, and represent uh, the needs of our community. And um, sadly, that's not been the case, and there's just too much at stake for us to sit back and wait. And so this PTA mom is taking the bull by the horns, and um, I'm running for office. So please don't think of me as a politician. I know that's hard to do when I am one, and I have to face the, I, I have to acknowledge the fact that I am one, and sometimes that's hard because um, even today people won't take their pictures with me and things like that, and I just want to be part of the party. There is an important election coming up, November 8th. You guys know that. There are four, candid four candidates running for the four open JCPS school board seats, and all four of them have a fascist candidate running. They are backed by out-of-state, special interest, dark money groups. I filed a 42-page complaint with KREF, the Kentucky Registry of Election Finance, documenting some of these charades and scams and connections, connecting dots. They're getting quoted in the media, looking like they're legitimate, concerned parents, when they're really the granddaughter-in-law of the guy who runs the SPLC designated hate group, American Family Association. You probably have heard of Frank Simon. So one of his employees was one of the speakers at a board meeting and WFPL played her entire anti-SRO speech without ever once telling us that she worked for a hate group and uh, never even represented the other perspective in this article and even uh, misrepresented how the disruption took place that ended up shutting down that board meeting in October if you may recall at Central High School uh, there was a board meeting that was shut down and there's a picture of me in the paper pointing at the white woman that came and sat in front of the families that I was there with there were over 30 people that had signed up to speak that day authentic students parents community members with valid concerns on both sides both sides had speakers signed up. I wouldn't say both sides had valid concerns because there is a, there is a propaganda out there. There's a dog whistle out there. And uh, they're using it to gin up their base and to recruit people to who knows what. Who knows what they're capable of? We've got uh, the January 6th investigation taking place. We've got indictments coming out. We've got people getting arrested. Um, we've got an election that they may not like the results of and may think that they'll just wait for this electoral decision to, to be made by our Supreme Court, which is on the docket this week, by the way. People need to be paying attention to what's really at stake and that they have a pathway. They have a pathway, and JCPS is a linchpin. Jefferson County Public Schools is a linchpin community. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about why. Jefferson County is the largest district in the state. And in fact, this card that you have at your table, it's an invitation to a conversation, a community conversation that I'll be hosting on October 16th. And on the back of it, it says why it matters. And so some of the things I'm gonna say right now, you can take with you and look at again. You don't have to write it all down or, or memorize it. But Jefferson County is the largest district in the state. Kentucky is the largest state in the country that does not yet have charter schools, vouchers, and other predatory practices in place. We've managed to stave that off. It wasn't, it wasn't just good luck. It's, it's been a lot of work. For the last 10 years, um, I've been a witness to and even uh, a participant and sometimes an organizer and a leader in that work. And uh, I saw what was coming to our schools back in 2000 and, well, I didn't even understand what it was when I started fighting it, to be honest with you. 
But um, I think what I did, I think I thwarted a charter school takeover of Shawnee High School because everything I did to try to make that school better, marketing is my background, so I just wanted to build a website. Like, the things that I wanted to do to try to, to turn the school around, because that's what they claimed they wanted to do, they fought me every step of the way. The teachers union has leaders in it. The, I love the teachers, I love the teachers union, I want to say that real clear, but there are people in the organization who control all the levers behind the scenes and they are not on our side. They are not on their side. There have not been free and fair elections in the, in the teachers unions teachers union for about 15 years and every time members try to organize it and take their power back it gets derailed because the president has the, the control of the software and he says who won the election and then that's just the end of it and um, there have been you can google botched BSK election if you want to see a time when we actually documented it and they investigated themselves and they said they did nothing wrong we, we've heard that story before haven't we uh-huh. That's going on a lot in Jefferson County, not just with our police, not just with the with the uh, some of the union leadership. I'm not even going to say all I'm not saying all unions are bad. I'm saying that there are people that power corrupts and it it's happened and we have to acknowledge that because we will get to a certain point in our work that we're making a difference and we're doing good work. We had 10,000 teachers in Frankfurt storming the Capitol. I don't want to say storming the Capitol because we weren't storming the Capitol. But it felt good. It felt good because we were exerting our, our constitutional rights to, to assemble. We were using our voices, and they shut us down. Not only did Governor Bevin shut us down, but the, 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 the leadership in some of these organizations actually held a 45-minute press conference and told their members in the community not to listen to the rogue groups. Have any of you ever been called rogue? Sound familiar? Outside agitator. Yeah, <laughs> all of that stuff. So, you know, you're going to hear things about me. You're going to hear people that say, oh, gay's trouble and gay, you know, don't trust gay and whatever. Those are the people that are probably um, exposed for doing some things that they shouldn't have been doing. And so I, I, I ask you to just go to my website, follow some of the breadcrumbs that I've posted out there because I, don't, I keep receipts. I have so many receipts. And like I said, I filed that 42-page uh, complaint. And uh, they got a, three different, uh, I guess they're all PACs. You guys know what a PAC is, right? Political Action Committee. Um, the money that's being spent is dark money. The candidates themselves have to, have to follow much stricter guidelines. And um, three different PACs were involved in the, in the report that I turned in. Two of them were uh, with ties to fascists. And I, I mean, People don't like it when I use the word fascist. I think I'm safe in this room to use the word fascist because you all know that that's what this is. And, um, but it, it hurts white people's feelings. <laughs> so I have to, that's why my card, the host of my party actually had me take the word fascist off of my card and change it to right-wing extremist. So that's why it's a little soft. Um, but um, I just want to make sure you know that there are four open seats and um, so not just in my race, but in all four races, we have to make sure that we show up at the ballot box. And I do believe that word of mouth is, is possible. We still have four, more than four weeks to tell people what's at stake and uh, who the dangers are and how to spot them and who they should vote for instead. And like I said, I think Louisville is the linchpin because we are the largest state in the district. If they, they've, been, they've been coming for Kentucky for 10 years, more than that, really. They've been putting their people in place. Matt Bevan, his hedge fund partner, uh, started Bluegrass Institute for Public Policy. They're still a think tank that chimes in every once in a while. Um, and they're a hedge fund, and we know how bad hedge funds are. 
Um, so um, they're still here. They just get different people to represent them. They pay off different people. We were talking about how there are people that are taking money and they look like us and they get alongside us and we're running and doing all the things we need to do. And then not only do they bail on us, they do this, right? They trip us. They throw us under the bus. And we have to be able to avoid those situations in the future because there's too much at stake and we don't have the, the, the spare time and resources and all those things. So um, when it comes to votes at the board level, we usually have about a four to three. When it comes to the important decisions, it's usually divided by race. It's usually the three black board members and Chris Cole voting one way, and the three white the other three white members voting the other. But that's been enough of a margin for us to 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 keep our community safe when when the when COVID was here and it really mattered, right? Um, if any one of those four seats gets taken over, our margin will be gone. I'm the only candidate on the ballot that's running against an incumbent where I'm the progressive. In all three other races. Uh, the incumbent is the best choice. My race is the only race where the incumbent is bad news. He's already shown us that he will side with the fascists when they show up in numbers of 100 or more. And last I checked, there's more than 100 people in our district, 100 people of privilege, mostly white, who can just do whatever and come and demand that they don't want their children to wear masks. And even though they could get a note, they could simply get a note if they don't want their children to wear masks, but they want to take those masks away from everybody. And regardless of how you feel about masks, we have to err on the side of caution, especially for a population that is majority, uh, majority non-white. We have to listen to our families that are non-white. We can't let the white families just keep showing up and making all the demands, and then we, you know, we give in to their. And I'm, I'm in Northeast Jefferson County. That's my district. So as you can imagine, the things I'm saying right now don't sell real well in my part of town. So again, that's why I need people to tell my story for me and get that word out, word of mouth. So on the back of the table, I have a sheet that I call my 10 Friends Challenge, because I don't have the dark money that they have. There's a group out of Texas that's endorsing the four uh, extremist candidates. And then uh, the teachers union that I already told you what's problematic about them, they're endorsing the incumbents in all four races, but they're spending five times more money on the white incumbents than they are the black incumbents. Why, how, why is that not a big deal? Because the black incumbents generally tend to vote with us. So I guess they don't care if those votes get erased or replaced, those board members get replaced. So um, we just have to, I have to be able to show you what to look for. That's what I'm trying to do on my website. So that's why I said go to the website and look for the, for the breadcrumbs and then do your own research because the truth speaks for itself. This is not one, you know, their side, our side. There's good guys and bad guys on both sides, no. There's a right side of history and a wrong side of history. We're on the right side of history. We just need an opportunity to get our, get our message out. That's how we're going to change people's hearts and minds and um, change the outcome of this election is to just spread the word. And if Trump's army is successful, it will mean even worse for us. Um, we already lost bodily autonomy. Um, so there's an event, like I mentioned, the card, um, October 16th is a, what is that, a Sunday? Sunday, Sunday, four from four to six. It's in the Wildwood neighborhood, up in uh, not by the golf course, but up off of Hurstbourne and um, Shelbyville Road. There's Wildwood 
neighborhood. It's at a lady's house that's hosting it for me. So if you can come and you can bring some friends and let's have a deeper conversation about some of these things that I brought to your attention. My, num my phone number is on my card. Feel free to call me or text me with further questions. If you're willing to put a decal on your car and drive around town, I got pink because one, it, I love pink, um, but also because I'm a woman. I'm the only mom in the race. I'm the only person on the ballot who can speak from experience about pregnancy and my, my decisions that I've had to make throughout my time. But pregnancy will also affect our students. Our students, 9 and 10, have sought abortions in the past. They will be forced to give birth. And, and what happens to them? Will they, will they drop out of school? Will, they, will we need to put more funding into the TAP program? What about curriculum? We're going to have some important curriculum decisions to make. Instead of banning books, that, like that's what they want to talk about is the things that aren't even relevant. We need to be talking about making sure we keep all of these books in our schools and then some. We need to be teaching medically accurate, age appropriate, sex education. Comprehensive. Comprehensive. That's the word. I was like, I know there's another word I want to say. Thank you. I get nervous up here. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, one of the, another thing I want to just, there are some things that are so alarming, but we don't get to talk about them because they're always hogging all the microphones, right? And I feel like I'm doing that right now, too, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up soon. But I want to... Um, I want to show you a couple other things we're doing. We're doing a book drive, so that's another thing that's at the back. We're going to be promoting Chalk It Up's toy drive, their Christmas uh, drive as well, so you can bring new Christmas-type presents, so books, clothes, toys, and we will gather them for Chalk It Up, plus books that we're taking to Eastern Kentucky on October 22nd for the schools that were uh, affected by the floods. So uh, there will be a caravan send-off. I'm calling it a book band caravan, but I don't want us to call it that too loudly just yet because we don't want Eastern Kentucky going, we don't want them, or anything like that just yet because, you know, the other side will tend to talk things and make it seem worse than it really is. Um, but there are books that are being banned right now that simply have diverse lead characters, and that's all it is about them, or a, diver or a, or a minority author, or, you know, the Ruby Bridges story is being banned in some places. Ba Black History Month is being banned in some places. This is a dangerous slope to fascism. That's exactly what this is. So I really need your help. I need your help in getting the word out. My initials are GPA, so that's pretty easy to remember, GPA for JCPS. I also run an organization called, I don't think I even mentioned, I run. Uh, I started a group called Dear JCPS in 2015 and Save Our Schools Kentucky in 2016. And that's the real reason I'm running is because I've been doing this work and I've, I've discovered that they deny you access to open records. Even though that's the law, they don't have to give you everything. They don't tell you the truth. Or they, they conveniently manipulate the data so that what you get doesn't really help you. Like I've been asking for how much we pay out on settlements and they say they don't keep that. How can you not keep that? It's a, you have to write a check. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's in a budget. Right. It's in a budget somewhere, and I'm a taxpayer, and I feel like I should. So I'm, it, it may be, I, it maybe I still won't have access to that information, but I'm sure as heck in a better position to demand things and make public statements and make the public aware of what's really going on if I'm on that board. So it's a blur. I am writing a book, though. And because we got to tell our history, we got to tell the real story of what's happened. And like I said, I keep receipts, so you know they can tell me it's not true, and I'll be like, "What else did you have to say?" But when it comes to accepting donations for political causes and then turning around and spending money, like I said, grassroots and word of mouth is so effective. Like I don't know if you remember in 2016. I'll give you a little more history real quick. Um, when De when Donna Hargens was still our superintendent, you remember that? So 2016, I got an email like that just two days ago that I said that at that October board meeting that we were saying uh, white people must die or something like that. Like, 
what what do you hear what did I say that makes you hear that like I know I, sometimes I say that's a racist bill and I get accused of calling someone a racist and I'm like no the fact that you still support that bill makes you a racist after I pointed out why it's racist but I didn't ever call you that that's your choice but then they go around and tell people but that's just how they distort the truth and make people not want to support you and we can overcome that that's easy. So 2016, when Donna Hargens was our superintendent, we got rid of board members. David Jones was the one that kept her in, in power. And we promoted Chris Kolb. And even with no other endorsements than the Dear JCPS endorsement, we got Chris Kolb in office. And I didn't spend more than $100. I just made a graphic and shared it on our posts. And we, we did some door knocking and things like that. But we can do it with little money. We just got to gotta put the energy into it as well and, and keep it moving, keep, keep going. So I think that's it. Yeah. Thank you. Man, another round of applause for gay all the men, freedom fighters in the house. Yeah, yeah. But uh, real ally, comrade in the struggle here. Coming up to the stage next, I got my homies, Party for Socialism and Liberation. Uh, you want to give them a quick blurb on the party and then just uh, talking about abolishing the Supreme Court, y'all. So give a listen in here and uh, see what we're talking about. So, hi all, as he introduced earlier. My name is Jer. I'm with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Uh, we're a, you know, explicitly socialist party that believes that, uh, sort of with the socialist sentiment, from each according to their ability and to each according to their need. What I'll be talking about today is looking at the U.S. Uh, government structure and the Supreme Court and why it is fundamentally undemocratic. So, let's sort of give some history here. On uh, June 24th of this year, the Supreme Court overturned the only federal protection of a woman's democratic right to abortion. For the American people, this decision was shocking, considering at least 57% of people disagree with the Supreme Court, and at least 62% support abortion in all or most cases. On top of that, the Supreme Court is now calling into question Obergefell v. Hodges and Griswold v. Connecticut, challenging the right to marriage, and the right to contraceptives. In times like these, it's easy to succumb to passivity or trust in the democratic institutions the US claims to have in place. But when the Supreme Court references ideas like constitutional values or the desires of the founding fathers, uh, we see the US state isn't failing its democratic principles, it's defending the capitalist foundation the empire was built on. If we look at the Constitution, we see it was written and framed by just 55 white landowning men, a fraction of a fraction of the U.S. population in 1787 and a fraction of the fraction of the U.S. population today. The Constitution of the United States of America is the oldest constitution of its kind Western powers still use today. This decrepit and dying document has been artificially kept alive by the dictatorship of the capitalist class as the codifying document laying out the structure of the U.S. state, the U.S. Constitution secured the rights of wealthy white slave owners living on colonized land and laid the groundwork for the anti-democratic empire we struggle against today. Most notably in this struggle is the fight against the U.S. Supreme Court, a body of six to ten elites elected by their fellow elites with lifetime appointments to the supreme uh, interpreters and guidance of the U.S. state's legal framework. Cloaked in the premise of checks and balances, uh, the Supreme Court has ensured that Congress upholds the constitutional values the slave traders who wrote the document envisioned. Mm. 
Throughout the U.S. state's history, the ruling class has fought to build a nation whose purpose is to protect the private property of wealthy elites. This began with the Three-Fifths Compromise and Article I, Section 9's laissez-faire capitalist approach to the slave trade, limiting the taxation of the nation's most profitable industry at the time. Just six years after the Constitution's creation, Congress added the Fugitive Slave Clause in 1793 to further solidify the groundwork on which the empire of slavery would build its economy on. Of course, the empire wasn't able to build its slave economy without resistance from the people. With the rise of the American abolitionist movement in the mid-1800s, the slave-owning class needed assistance from the U.S. state to protect their class interests. This resulted in the Supreme Court's Dred Scott v. Sanford decision, the court's clearest ruling upholding the practice of slavery. In 1857, the Supreme Court ruled Dred Scott, a slave suing for his freedom, couldn't sue for his freedom because the U.S. state didn't consider him a citizen, but private property of another individual. He was not considered a citizen and therefore could not sue any court for his freedom. The decision went even further so as to assert that even free states must treat escaped slaves as private property and forcibly return escaped slaves to the people the U.S. state called owners, thus asserting slavery as the law of America. But despite the efforts of the slave-owning class, the abolitionist struggle continued to fight back uh, with efforts like John Brown's armed uprising at Harper's Ferry in West Virginia. Following the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860, the slave-owning class soon realized its effort to extend their control of the slaveocracy were doomed to fail. This ultimately led to the Civil War in 1861, where southern states seceded from the Union and declared a new nation based on universal slavery. Following the defeat of the Confederacy and the passing of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, hopes for a new Reconstruction South, ensuring democracy and the economic well-being of millions of former slaves, began to emerge. The white ruling class had lost its monopoly on political power, and black political power began to make itself known. In Beaufort, South Carolina, a center of the plantation aristocracy, the mayor, the police force, and magistrates uh, in... Um, uh, were all black in 1873. Bolivar County, uh, Mississippi, and St. John the Baptist Parish in Louisiana were under total black control, and Little Rock City Council had an on and off black majority. However, these hopes were systematically destroyed by two developments. First, the explosion of U.S. capitalism with powerful trusts and corporations emerging on the scene, and second, the northern political establishment, anxious to absorb the recently defeated slaveocracy into their ranks, crushing the Reconstruction era in 1877 and ushering in an era of Jim Crow apartheid and KKK terror. And who do we have to thank in our government for this counter-revolutionary assault but the U.S. Supreme Court? By 1886, historian Howard Zinn, author of The People's History of the United States, writes the Supreme Court had accepted the argument that corporations were persons and their money and property were protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. In fact, between 1868 and 1912, the Supreme Court based 604 decisions on the 14th Amendment. Of those 604, 312 dealt with corporations. 312. In the mere 28 that dealt with the rights of African Americans, the Supreme Court ruled against the African-American appellant in 22 cases. 22 of 28, that's six cases where the Supreme Court barely stepped up to defend the rights of black Americans. 
1896, the Supreme Court ruled that, Ples or in the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, that separate but equal facilities for black riders on railroad cars were legal. Jim Crow had gotten its legal stamp of approval. In 1944, as continues into the 20th century, the Supreme Court even ruled in the case of Korematsu versus the United States that it was the constitutional right for the US president to sign an executive order rounding up 110,000 Americans and placing them in concentration camps. At this point, you're all probably asking yourselves, how is this possible? Uh, to answer this, we have to first remember what we said earlier about the uh, Supreme Court. It's a body of elites elected by elites whose job is to ensure Congress upholds constitutional values, a document which doesn't even contain the word democracy. With constitutional values in mind, it comes as no surprise that the US uh, Supreme Court enforces racist, classist, and sexist policies. The judges within the body were selected to do so. In order to reach the pinnacles of power, Supreme Court justices had to prove their loyalty to the ruling class. Most often, this means that their family and other ties to the ruling class must be extensive and tested. The first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay, who was appointed by George Washington in 1789, uh, demonstrated his allegiance to wealth and power uh, by birth and marriage. Jay was related to some of the wealthiest families in the United States, he even believed that those who, ought, or those who own the country ought to govern it. He was a strong advocate of strict property uh, requirements for voting rights. After Jay retired, Washington then appointed John Rutledge from South Carolina. Rutledge was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, uh, convention and was an adamant defender of slavery. His uh, nomination was uh, sort of turned down by the Senate, but he did serve a few months as Chief Justice. In the 20th century, returning to Franklin Roosevelt, he appointed Hugo Black as Supreme Court Justice. And let's learn a little bit about Hugo Black. In the 1920s, Black was a member of the KKK in Alabama. While he claimed that he was never an ideological adherent to the Klan, biographer Robert K. Newman notes that Black could not have had any illusions about the group he joined. Illegal Klan activities were part of daily life in Birmingham. The current Chief Justice, John G. Roberts, was appointed by George Bush in 2005, a Bush-type ideologue. He's on the record uh, saying he's against women's reproductive rights, affirmative action, and voting civil rights. Referring to the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973 legalizing abortion, he said that it was wrongly decided and should be overruled. But what, may, or what about the cases uh, brought before the courts that sort of ruled in favor of the masses? What makes the Supreme Court hand down a progressive decision as it has done on occasion? The Supreme Court rules in favor of the people when the ruling class fears that it must make concessions in order to maintain its overall position of domination in society. It has made such concessions in the face of mass movements in the United States, as well as in response to revolutionary developments around the world. In 1954, the Brown v. Board of Education ruling abolished the Plessy v. Ferguson separate but equal ruling ordering the desegregation of schools in Topeka, Kansas. At the time, civil rights organizing was picking up momentum when the Chinese Revolution was inspiring decolonization struggles around the world. The US government feared losing more than just an end to separate but equal. But it wasn't the Supreme Court that dismantled the racist apartheid state that existed in the southern half of the United States. It was the explosion of the civil rights struggle. 
the largest mass movement in U.S. history, which led Congress to pass the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voters' Rights Act. The adoption of affirmative action as a mechanism to remedy centuries of discrimination came during the tenure of the racist Nixon administration, because that struggle continued to gain momentum in the streets and workplaces throughout the United States in the 1960s. It was the Supreme Court that began the process of undoing affirmative action with the 1978 Bakke decision, which claimed that white people were the victims of reverse discrimination. <laughs> I know. When a previously all-white medical school allowed for even minimal guarantees of admissions for black students. The civil rights and black liberation movement had waned in the mid-1970s. Free from uh, mass pressure, the Supreme Court not only attacked affirmative action, but also restored the racist death penalty in 1976. The effect of the mass movement uh, on the court was evident when it came to abortion rights as well. The 1973 Roe v. Wade uh, ruling guaranteed women the right to control their own bodies and was made by a 7-2 vote during the Nixon administration. It was the sweeping radicalization and mass protest of the grassroots that made it possible. Notably, the chief justice at the time was a conservative Nixon um, uh, appointee, Warren Burger. Every election year, uh, many people sort of weigh in the possibility of what kind of Supreme Court justice a candidate might nominate if they had the chance. Really, the power of the president in making lifetime appointments to the most undemocratic body in U.S. politics becomes a key component of the lesser of two evils argument that social democrats use to corral voters into the Democratic Party. So what can we do to uh, fight against the Supreme Court's ruling? What is to be done? namely abolish capitalism. No mode of production based on extreme inequality and exploitation would be able to last long if it did not have ruling class or ruling institutions, political systems, ideas, traditions, and so on that protected and rationalized those economic processes. The ruling class does not just get to extract wealth, it also has to find stable rule, ways to rule. Forms of patriarchy operate powerfully at the base of capitalism and how the system, reproduce, or the system produces and reproduces itself on a daily basis. It also is a cornerstone at the superstructural level and in particular as a central element of the reactionary agenda. So how could patriarchy be ended under capitalism it is so embedded at every level of the capitalist system. It's impossible. We must instead turn to socialism. Socialism, by contrast, eliminates the economic dependence on the family unit. Simply by changing who controls and who owns the vast means of production, every person can now be guaranteed housing, food, health care, child care, retirement and other human needs, they could be sort of won and gained overnight. A government in the hands of a class-conscious workers would also remove from power the lackeys of billionaire bigots and instead launch a bold initiative to advance women's equality and liberation in the world of culture, ideas, education, and politics. This is an ongoing process which the Party for Socialism and Liberation is currently struggling in. In Louisville right now, we're gathering signatures for a petition with six demands. The first being Metro Council pass an ordinance decriminalizing abortion and making Louisville a sanctuary city for those seeking or providing abortion care. The second is that Metro Council direct LMPD and all other legal entities to refuse to comply with or enforce any laws that would detain, arrest, fine, sanction, 
punish or constrain those seeking uh, to provide abortion care. The third is that Metro Council fund the out-of-state travel for those seeking abortion care by establishing a renewable pool of funding. The fourth is that Metro Council ensures access to sexual and reproductive health care, including but not limited to education, prenatal care, free contraception, miscarriage management, IVF and IUI services, and STI testing and treatment. The fifth is that County Attorney Mike O'Connell refused to prosecute anyone for providing or receiving abortion care. And the final sixth one is that Mayor Greg F uh, Fisher exercised his authority over LMPD to deprioritize to the lowest level any enforcement of abortion bans or restrictions. We also urge that everyone eligible to vote in Kentucky vote no on Amendment 2 on November 8th in this coming election. This amendment seeks to undermine the legal challenges for abortion and to prevent the right to an abortion from ever entering the Kentucky Constitution. But most importantly, we must organize ourselves and build the structure which will bring about socialism within our lifetime. Remember, only the struggle has won women's rights. Thank you for your time. My name is Taylor Ryan. I know we only got 10 minutes left. Uh, I am the executive director and founder of Change Today, Change Tomorrow. Change Today, Change Tomorrow was founded in 2019 with my, baby, with my baby on my hip. We was out here young and getting it. We didn't really have ish. So pretty much poor black woman made something out of nothing. I have two master's degrees and nobody wanted to pay me more than $12 an hour for my great ideas. And so I was like, let me just see if I can start something somewhere else. And I started something on my own. It's called Change Today, Change Tomorrow. It actually stems from a class from my second master's program where we had to make a nonprofit, a fake nonprofit. And so I pretty much had the entire layout. I had a website already. And I was like, let me just see if I can make something out of this. So here we are today, three and a half years later, and still broke. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about it. How they keep giving all the other nonprofits all the money. Okay, so I know you all have heard the history lessons and all the things I'm here to tell you about what the people on the ground are doing to eliminate the barriers that plague the black and marginalized communities. So our mission is we are devoted to eradicating the barriers that plague the, mar the marginalizing black community, specifically in food justice and public health. That allows us to shape shift to the community's needs because we're not one nonprofit who does one thing and that's all we do and we just do it that one time of the year. No, we at work every day, except for Friday. We do not work Fridays, <laughs> period. So Monday through Thursday, I'm at 902 South 15th Street. It's 15th and Breckenridge, two blocks in front of St. Stephen's. If you're black, if you're white, it's down the street from Brown Foreman. <laughs> Everybody got the picture idea in their head now, you know where we are, all right. So we got 10 different programs that we do throughout the year. Most of them are quarterly programs. We have a community baby shower. We do HIV and AIDS awareness. We have a black trans fund. Child, we, every Thursday we downtown feeding the unhoused, a hot meal, cold meal, snack, and a bag of toiletries. It's our longest running program. Vincent said he used to help us with the truck. I don't remember because I don't do it all now. We got staff and volunteers and stuff. Yeah, so we have a large partnership with the LRCC. We are down there every week, every Thursday evening between 4 and 7 p.m. We go downtown, serve three different sites, up to about 200 people in the summer, 100 people outside of the summer. So as you all know, we can't just keep dropping people off stuff and resources. So we have a long tier goal plan from, one is direct service, that's what we're doing right now. Dropping this off to people, hey, what you need? All right, we got what you need. If we don't have what you need, we're gonna get you connected to somebody else who can do, can do that. We are not trying to solve the world at all. Like we are just one person, few people doing a lot. 
We have a really small budget and we're making a large impact. And so we ain't gonna make a new program just because you have a need, but we're gonna connect you with somebody else who can fulfill that need. Um, our largest program, most popular program is called Feed the West. It is not ran at Black Market. It is a Change Today, Change Tomorrow program. We run it Monday through Thursday. Monday through Wednesday, it is a delivery program. So we have a large partnership with Trader Joe's. Every morning we're going to Trader Joe's, picking up what they would be typically throwing away at their waste. Thousands of pounds in the city are being, thousands of pounds of food in the city are being thrown away every day by the grocery stores, every day. And so we're lucky to have two partners, Value Market and Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's is our largest partner. We're picking up every day, Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and rerouting those groceries back to our office. So about 40 to 60 boxes of groceries every morning come back to our office. We sort them, pull out the bag. Some things are expired, put that out, and then pre-bag groceries for people who have their requests in. So our requests per day, they vary based on people's needs. Um, we give bags out based on the household size, and we don't have restrictions. So at Change Today, Change Tomorrow, you never have to show me how poor you are. It's not my business. I've dropped off groceries to mansions. I've dropped, dropped off groceries to the porch. You know, like, it really don't matter to me what your living situation is. It matters, but not in a way of, like, show me how poor you are. Like, we got work to do, honey. If you need free groceries, you obviously need free groceries. If your house is big, that means your bills is big, okay? So you probably need some help with some food. Um, so on Thursdays, outside of deliveries, we are doing a pop-up right outside of our business, 902 South 15th. We are serving the California neighborhood. Um, anybody and everybody is welcome to come to the pop-up. Again, no restrictions. You line up. People start lining up around 10 a.m. The pop-up is not until noon. You do not have to pull up at 10, but, you know, because the nonprofit industrial complex that we have been navigating, people are getting to places early so they can get served. We're serving everybody. We don't run out. If we do run out, we're just going to buy some more food. We have a large partnership with DoorDash, and so every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, DoorDash is picking up our groceries for free, and they're delivering them to our residents for free. Because we are a very small organization, we have to know, you know, have to, we have to be resourceful. We don't have a lot of money to spend, and so we're picking up Trader Joe's groceries for free, taking them back to our office, resorting them, putting them back out. DoorDash is delivering them for free. Again, don't have much money. A lot of times I haven't taken a paycheck this year. I don't know any other nonprofit CEO doing that in this city. They would just fire somebody instead. But instead, I would not take a paycheck, and so my staff can't get paid. And so just here to highlight that, I know a lot of people talk about anti-capitalism and things. Like, we're not here to raise a million dollars and give the CEO a bonus. We're here to raise a million dollars and give that back out to the community. It's not sustainable, but that's what the work we're doing is called mutual aid. We have an event this Saturday, October 15th. So um, it's at the Filson Historical Society. It is very fancy, okay? We had to make the white folks comfortable, all right? <laughs> all right. And so it is an annual fundraiser that we are trying to raise lots of money like the other fancy nonprofits in the city. So come out. We have a sponsor uh, bar by Heaven Hill. Everybody gonna get drinks. So if you know, you get a little drink and you get your, po you get your pocket a little loose. Donate a little money. And so 6.30 is when the doors open. We'll have a silent auction. We'll have an art gallery. We'll have live art. We'll have a spoken word. It'll be an all around, you know, dope evening. Two free cocktails, appetizers, dinner. That is on October 15th, 6.30 at the Filson. We're doing a lot of work with, a lot of, with no money. So donate. If, you're going, if you donate to the larger organizations, make sure you donate to the smaller organizations. We're serving 300 people per week. Per week. There's a lot of people that's getting a million dollars that are not serving 300 people per week. That's all I need to say. Taylor Ryan. And that's all the time we have for today here on Truth to Power. You've been listening to our live coverage of the Community Control Now Vegan Breakfast Teaching that was held on October 8th. Hope you enjoyed it. We look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time. Be well.